buying behavior has changed. Prospects don't click on links and emails anymore, and they don't watch the videos you spend hours creating every week. Instead, send personalized gifts and memes using Vidyu. You can quickly create engaging, personalized content that immediately grabs your prospect's attention, helps you stand out in the inbox, and does it all without forcing them to click anything or go anywhere. Head over to vidyou.io slash salescast to sign up for free and spend less time getting your messages across and more time selling. Welcome to The Sales Hustle, the only no BS podcast where we bring you the real, raw, uncut experiences from sales change makers across various industries. The only place where you can get what you're looking for to up your sales game. Today's episode is brought to you by SalesCast. SalesCast helps sales professionals transform the relationship building process and win their dream clients. I'm your host, Colin Mitchell. What is happening, sales hustlers? Welcome to another episode. I'm extremely excited today for the guest. I'm going to be talking with Andy Paul. He's the host of the top-rated sales podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, with more than 900 episodes to date and millions of downloads. Andy, thanks so much for coming on today. Colin, thanks for inviting me. It's been looking forward to it. Yeah, I know. We just started chatting. I was like, we got to hit record and yeah. get going before we... You know, <laughs> Hopefully, don't leave good stuff behind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, awesome. So I'm happy to have you on here. You know, We kind of have some topics that we're going to dig in today, the things that you enjoy talking about, and I, I believe are going to have a ton of value for all of our sales hustlers listening. Uh, but just give us the short version, like what's Andy Paul's sales story? It's a long one. I'm... I'm I'm ancient. I'm old. But um, yeah, I graduated college with uh, a history degree and no discernible job skills. So I went into sales and landed uh, selling computers at the time, standalone computers, mm-hmm. uh, to small and mid-sized enterprises. I was working at, at that time, a company called Burroughs, second largest computer company in the world at that time. And yeah, my day was uh, driving out to a business park somewhere in the East Bay of the Bay Area and getting on my car and making calls all day long, uh, at least at the beginning, and uh, until I built up a, a pipeline. But yeah, just door-to-door in the businesses, selling selling computer systems for accounting, accounting applications. Mm. And then, so, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, so some, some real cold calling. Oh yeah, absolutely, real <laughs> cold calling. Uh, you, you weren't yeah, hiding but, behind your phone. Well, so we were in a big bullpen, and the boss would come in at eight thirty and turn the lights out. So <laughs> <laughs> when the lights were out, you were gone. There was no. Yeah. Uh, and this was, you know, not to date myself too horribly, but yeah, it was before PCs, and and uh, you know, we shared a phone. I sat cheek by jaw with another guy, and there's I don't know, sixteen of us in this room, and two every two people shared a phone, and. Yeah, those were uh, those were the good old days. Yeah, but, turn the uh, lights out, get out of here, hit the pavement. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah I ended up I don't know why, but I ended up doing reasonably well, making presidents club first couple of years, got promoted quickly to sales management, and well, somewhere in my sort of fourth year on the job uh, in sales is started losing deals to <laughs> PCs that we were mm. selling 
in today's dollars, these are you know quarter million dollar systems we were selling. And I remember going into one customer's office. I thought for sure we we're going to close it. Actually, I'd spoke to the decision maker the day before, the owner of the company. My sales guy wanted me to go down with him to help close the deal. And we get there and says, "Yeah, hey, I just can't can't give you the order." I said, well, "Why?" And he turns around, credenza behind his desk, and points at an Apple II. <laughs> says that yeah, I went to the computer store last night. They said this can do everything your sixty thousand dollar computer can do, and I was like, "No," <laughs> but there was no arguing with the guy. Uh, I mean, the Apple II had just gotten distrized for the first time at that point. Just, uh, but that started happening a few times. So I picked up the phone and called a friend who was at Apple and said, "Hey, I want to come to work there." So I actually moved from Burroughs, went to work at Apple in the early days, eighty one to eighty three, and. Uh, ran small business marketing for Apple. So how to sell Apple IIs, Apple threes. I sort of like the first software evangelist for Apple. My job was to go find people, develop software applications, biz for business for Apple II and Apple III computers. Um, and then a couple other startups where the company made the first battery-powered notebook computer. Uh, it was a spectacular failure. Uh, and then ended up sort of moving into the satellite communications field and worked in that for about 15 15 years to selling really large infrastructure type satellite communication systems all over the world, which was a lot of fun. And then started mm. my own company in 2000. So I've been doing consulting, mostly working with small and mid-sized businesses to teach them how to sell big things and compete against big competitors uh, to help scale their business. Started my podcast about five years ago and then just out of the blue got an offer to sell my podcast to a software company, Ring DNA, uh, last year. And so we've been just sort of focused on podcasting the last year. Wow. Okay. So uh, I have a couple of questions for you sure. before we dig in. So is there anything, you know, what, what if maybe there's a couple things um, that you learned along the way, you know, early in your sales career that just kind of have always stuck with you and kind of molded mm -hmm. how you view, view sales? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I... I and that's just that's could be part of my my new book, but yeah, I think there are really four things you need to master. Master may even be the wrong word, but be proficient at in terms in order to succeed at sales. And they're not sort of the conventional hard sales skills. They're really I call them power skills, but soft skills. Other people call them. It's just the ability to connect with another human being, have an insatiable curiosity. Hmm. be persistent, meaning be curious until you fully understand what someone is saying and then take that understanding and be creative with it and, and apply it in a way to help solve the buyer's problems that, you know, some people call acumen. Uh, to me, the acumen is really just the applied knowledge of what you just learned from the customer to help them solve a problem and achieve an outcome that they want to achieve. So it's just connection, curiosity, understanding, and acumen and with those basic tool sets, yeah, I got a history major, you know, reasonably smart guy. I'm adept at technology for a layperson, but I'm certainly not a technologist, but worked in some very complex technical fields and did extremely well. And it was nothing about my understanding of the product. It was those four elements that I talked about that enabled me to succeed. And so I think that's true of everybody. You know, if, if especially in today's world where we see more technology coming into the space and sales over the last five, 10 years. It's really this golden age of sales technology. Mm -hmm. Despite that, 
it's still the human side of things that's going to be the differentiator for you. And yeah. you just can't ignore that. And there's some writers who are smarter than I am that look at the future and see what's evolving with AI and say, um, like Jeff Colvin in his book, Humans Are Underrated, who says, yeah, there's a sort of consensus developing that those who learn how to succeed in the future in this more heavily automated and machine learning environment are those who learn how to become more intensely human, meaning do the things that humans do uniquely and do them better than other people. Mm. So connect better, be more curious, develop a deeper understanding, have more empathy, build that rapport, apply your acumen, and focus on those things and you'll come out on top. So what I hear you're saying, Andy, is, is basically leaning more into those things will be the way to stand out in the, you know, other, the sea of salespeople that are going to be leaning more into automating and using technology to try to make their job a bit easier. Well, I mean, I use technology, obviously, to make my job easier, too, but I, I use it to make me better in those four areas that we talked about. Right. Um, and so instead of being scripted, I'm less scripted. Instead of following rigid processes, I advocate that sales leaders need to turn the salespeople free and give them more autonomy to use right. these, these four factors to help differentiate themselves, to help build the connections they need with these other humans, the multiple stakeholders in every account. And yeah, if people are under too tight of a rein, which I think unfortunately is too often the case these days, you can see the underperformance that we're seeing in much of B2B sales. And in, in, in that case, it's, it's really leaders not giving sellers sort of the autonomy to, to bring them, be more human, be more of themselves in these conversations, in these relationships, in these connections that they're building and being more reliant on sort of the scripted sort of playbook that's laid out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's for, you think about it. I mean, it's easy to come, become reliant on those things, on these more rigid processes. And there's multiple problems with that. One is, you know, most of the sales processes that are laid out that companies are using have no relationship at all to the buying process the buyers are using. You know, there's, I think, a, a widening gap. And I'm certainly not the only one that, that sees this. And I always give this example of Gartner back in 2018 came out the study, the buyer enablement study, and one of the centerpieces of this was this diagram, a flowchart of the buying process. And it was this, they call it the spaghetti diagram because it's like taking a handful of cooked spaghetti and throwing it on the wall. <laughs> but at its heart were four jobs that buyers accomplish, have to accomplish to make their purchase decision, which is define a problem, evaluate alternatives, finalize requirements, select a vendor. Now, I, I think that was a little simplified. I think there's actually a couple more steps in there for buyers, but basically along that, that path. And yeah, in the course of doing hundreds and hundreds of interviews since that time with sales leaders, not one has ever said, well, yeah, we've, we've sort of modified our sales processes to align with the way the buyer's buying. Mm. Not one. And and I always, you know, it, I sound a little, maybe amused is the wrong word, but when I read about sales leaders talking about, oh, we're practicing modern sales, 
and you look at their sales processes and you can google them online and find sales processes for companies all over it's it's like huh you know i was using that same sales process back in the 70s when i started selling it's not mm. changed yes we put a veneer of technology on top of it and yes we we have changed dramatically the top of the funnel the whole lead gen activity that's completely different but once you get into the heart of sales qualification demo you know discovery qualification demo whatever order you go in it's the same i had that same process decades ago so it's time to really change right instead of marking how we sell based on our steps that are you know our processes let's face it most sales processes are created for the convenience of management not for the seller and not for the buyer and i think until we start making that change and you know, a great new book out um, it's called sales management that works written by frank cespedes from harvard um he, you know he identifies changes in buying behavior that sellers need to adapt to that they haven't been and it's a topic that i think sales in general is gonna have to confront as if they really want to take maximum advantage of the technology that exists and increase productivity of the individuals and in the process help their buyers become more effective buyers they got to change the processes they use and so what are some things that need to be removed from the selling process and what are some things that need to be added to the selling process to mirror more of the buying process well there's several things I mean, first of all we look at sort of a bigger scope is is if you look even the Gartner diagram, but other people's work on the way decisions are made, they basically fall into two stages. The first mm -hmm. stage is someone says, we have to decide what our problem is and how we want to solve it. So they're going to, some people write about this, uh, Paul Nutt, uh, researcher, famous expert on decision science, you know, says, you know, people make a choice before they make a decision. They choose how they want to solve it before they decide who they want to solve it with. So, but we train salespeople to sort of focus on, hey, let's go persuade that person to sell your, to buy our product. Sort of bypassing this whole, let's really understand what the problem is. And not just understand mm -hmm. the problem, but let's help the buyer understand what their problem is, right? That's how the value we add is to really understand the scope and the magnitude of the problem and the outcomes they want to achieve. And then we need to help them evaluate the alternatives in addition to us, right? And then influence what we think is the best path for them to take yeah so i say sellers should spend more time thinking about the way they sell is sort of a like if you're a chip manufacturer you're trying to get your chip designed into a larger solution i mean any solution we sell from a business perspective is basically fitting into a larger system of the company's business right it needs to integrate seamlessly and it's going to help improve uh some dimension of their business one or more dimensions of their business so you really should be in that first stage of selling is we're just trying to solve how they want to solve their problem. You know, it's, it's not a, that's not a battle of products. That's a battle of ideas. Mm. And so it's really about how do I influence the buyer to think about the product or excuse me, the problems they want to solve and the outcomes they yeah. want to achieve in a certain way that when they get to the end of that phase of this of buying process, they say, yeah, this is how we want to solve the problem. And oh, by the way, it happens to look a lot like Colin's product. 
but if I hear what you're saying correctly here, is you're almost you're almost proposing that you actually lay out the options. Like, hey, here's some here's some paths to solving this problem. Mm-hmm. We're one of them, but we're not the only one, and you may want to consider these. Absolutely. I mean, if you're doing, I know the term is a little out of fashion these days, cons- yeah. cons- cons- consultative selling, Yeah. but you are becoming a trusted advisor. That's not out of fashion. That's still your goal as a seller. How do we become a trusted advisor to the buyer in helping them choose how they want to solve their problem? And so in the heart of my sales career, when I saw these you know, satellite systems worth tens of millions of dollars to customers, I routinely get to this point where I, I knew when the customer made that choice, that the choice of how they wanted to solve the problem, and I knew that you know, it was largely based on what I had been selling to them. Didn't mean I'd won the order at that point, mm. but I, the t- term I used for it at that point is I'd won the sale, right? I'd won that first battle about helping influence how they decide, chose they wanted to solve their, their problem. And then oftentimes they would bundle all that information up and they'd release an RFP to, you know, they'd down select from 12 vendors they talked to, the final three. But I knew that when my competitors opened up the RFP and looked at it, they'd say, shit, <laughs> Andy's been here. And that's what you wanted. Mm. So I wasn't guaranteed to win it. And oftentimes it was, yeah, it could be three to six months between knowing I'd sort of influenced that first decision to get the order, but I knew I had the inside track. And so I tried to front load as much of the value, and this is what I advocate, is front load as much of the value as I could into the process to help the customer decide what, A, what the problem is they're trying to solve, and B, what's the best way to solve it. And positioning yourself as the best path of solving that. To achieve the outcomes they want to achieve, yes. As long as they're aligned. Say that again? As long as it's aligned, right? Yeah, that's right. But it might not always be aligned, and that's okay. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes you don't get those deals, and that's fine. Um, so so many people want to try to force their solution to be the best option. And you're saying to not do that. No. You know, I've a boss, early boss gave me this this theory of the world, which I've used, for, I said, for decades. And I remember going in complaining once. This was in my first job before I got promoted to manager. It's like I'd sworn I was going to win this deal or it, I could have sworn I was going to win the deal mm-hmm. and didn't. And I was sort of you know, bitching and moaning about it to my sales manager. And he said, stop. He said, you want to hear my theory about the world? I said, sure. He said, here's my theory. It's a big world out there. Go find somebody that wants to buy our product. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good point. And it is a big world out there. And if you get, if you, if you're so, yeah, maybe if you're running, Depending on your style of selling, if you're running so lean on your pipeline that you, know, you can't afford to let someone go, well, you're going to lose it anyway. So you might as well let it go. Right? You have to be this, this uh, self-pragmatism you need to have is so important. Is another lesson I learned early in my career is just don't kid yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not, no one's benefiting from that. Don't kid yourself. You know, be as ruthless as you need to be to try to Qualify prospects, and if they're not going to qualify, then it's a big world. Go find another one that will. 
Yeah. And this is hard for sellers because it's been this way since the beginning of time is everybody wants to know what's in your pipeline. Everybody wants to know what your ratios are, your conversion ratios are. I mean, that's, these are not new. They've been around as long as there's sales. But I think what's different today is that managers are trying to apply uniform metrics to the whole team instead of saying, well, Andy does it differently than Colin, and I'm going to accept that, and I'm going to allow that. And that was hard for managers ages ago. It's still hard for managers now. But you know, I think for those people who want to be consistently successful in the business, they have to learn how to grab the autonomy to be able to operate on their own terms. And the way you do that is by delivering. Right. And different people can get the results in different ways. And a lot of people are stuck in that sort of rat race of hitting activity quota that a lot of managers demand. Well, they do. And that's because they're, they're fearful themselves. That's the reason, right? The reason managers, sales bosses, I call them, operate that way and are demanding is, is they're afraid because there's a similar set of metrics that's been applied to them. And mm. they don't know how to justify any changes from that, any variations. And sometimes they don't have the skill set because we've invested so little in sales managers to help them develop in their own skill sets is, yeah, they're a little uncomfortable about, well, geez, how do I work with my individual sellers to help them become the best version of themselves? And in the process, maybe they vary from our process bit by bit. Um, instead, it's sort of like everybody needs to be, hey, everybody needs 5X pipeline coverage. It's like, well, really? Do they? I don't think so. So I've got a question for you. I got to sure. ask you now. You called them sales bosses. <laughs> Explain that. Well, I, I just, instead of trying to distinguish between a C-level and a director level and a, you know, a frontline sales manager, it's just sales bosses. It's easier. My shorthand for the sales hierarchy. <laughs> and yeah, there are a lot of problems there. And yeah. I've been one for a long time. And so I'm perfectly aware of the problems. I'm not perfect by a stretch of imagination. But I think we're, again, as I said earlier, I think we're kidding ourselves about just how modern our selling is. And the impetus for change has to come from the management level and has to look at really how our buyer is actually buying. And shouldn't we be aligning our processes more closely to theirs instead of being stuck on discovery? Uh, or qualification. I mean, we need to do discovery. We need to do qualification. But let's, well, I mean, let's take discovery. This is one of my passions is that mm -hmm. you look at the normal sales process and there's a discovery stage, right? And there yeah. are exit criteria for discovery. Well, here's the problem with that is you don't do discovery only once during a sales process, during a buying process. You should do discovery every time you interact with a buyer you're doing discovery. Uh, there's always more you can learn. You don't have a full, complete, full understanding of what they want. Uh, buyers, as they go through the process, and let's say they're talking to three or four different vendors, what happens is they get smarter and educated about what it is that they potentially could accomplish. Or A, they get smarter about what their problem is. B, they get smarter about what potential outcomes they can achieve. Well, if you're not continually going back in and rediscovering and understanding what they think and what their perspectives are and what might have changed with them, sometimes even as a result of what you tell them, 
then you're going to miss something. And so saying that there's one point of discovery is foolhardy. It's not the way the world works. I mean, qualification, you know, look at the way we do qualifications. First, always have a you know, huge part of the sales universe hung up on BANT, yep. which you know, I think is pointless. But you can use some of those points as sort of a preliminary qualification. But my belief is, is that your prospect is not fully qualified until they quantify the value they're going to receive from using your product or service. Yeah. And if they can't quantify it, it means they have not done the internal business justification for the purchase, which means that the people that have to make the ultimate call aren't ready to make that call. But instead, most sales processes, we got the single point in our stage in our sales stage of qualification. You qualify every time you meet the customer, you're gonna qualify and requalify them. So looking at these things as sort of standalone events as opposed to part of a process that I think really mirrors what the buyer is going through because they're continually discovering, they're continually reevaluating their business case and what they can achieve based on what they've learned from vendors. Your sales process has to match that. Interesting. Yeah. Now I have, uh, what I'm curious is, is you talk to a lot of people in sales, mm. clearly. Uh, you talk to a lot of sales leaders or sales bosses. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, is there anybody out there that are doing some of these things that you're talking about and you feel are doing a good job? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, clearly com- some companies are doing things well and, and succeeding, right? But in success, though, especially in the tech space, is sort of interesting because a lot of it's due to circumstance, right? Being in the right place at the right time, uh, oftentimes credits given to their sales process, which isn't really the case. I mean, they're executing it and scaling it appropriately, but even then it could still be still be better. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of good sales leaders out there. I just... I still would say that in most cases from my conversations is they're not as buyer oriented or as interested in being aligned with the buyer as I think they, they need to be. And so one of my metrics that I look at that I try to encourage people to look at and sales leaders to look at is looking at productivity differently. Mm-hmm. And so for me, productivity and sales is measured just like productivity in the economy is. It's a rate of output per unit of investment or unit of input. And so I look at sales productivity as a measure of dollars of revenue generated per hour of sales time. Hmm. And as best I can tell, and the data's not very good in sales, as we all know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's never been, but in my conversations with people on my show, people more, from more from academia that have a little more insight into this than I do. But based on everything I tell us, this, this basic measure of sales productivity has not improved in the last 20 or 30 years. Which, given all the advantages of technology that we have today, you would logically think that it should. And, you know, the question is, gets back to are we using the technology in a way to to help productivity in this truest sense as opposed to just doing more things right is i measure or 
tell folks is, you know, the baseline, think about what your buyers want to achieve. You know, and people make a decision, and Herbert Simon, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on, on decision-making and other things in economics back in the 60s or 70s, I forget when he won it, actually. But he created this thing called the philosophy of bounded rationality. And he said that when people make decisions, they face the three same constraints. Mm-hmm. Time, information, and understanding. And so I believe, through my own experience and through research and reading, is that what buyers are trying to accomplish is they're trying to quickly gather information to make a good decision with the least investment of time and resources possible. That's what your buyers are trying to accomplish, which means that in most cases, they make what's called a good enough decision, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have constraints of time, information, and, and understanding. You know, they can never have enough time. They can never have perfect information provided by vendors, and they can never have perfect understanding of the problem or the potential solutions. Right. So, you know, it's when you think about okay, well, how do we set up our selling to to deal with this? Right? Is how can we help the customers more quickly come to an understanding of their problem? How can we help them move through? their processes with the least amount of time possible to help them make that good decision. And those buyers that are sellers that actually do that today are the ones that I think are most consistently successful. Is And that was always my goal is, yeah, how can I help the buyer get to that point where they say, wow, this is good. This is good enough, right? I could spend another two months researching the solution, but the outcome is not going to make me improve my output or whatever my top line goal was by 10% or 15% or whatever. Um, so we're going to pull the trigger now. So, so how does a seller set the stage to like, I'm going to help you make a good enough (laughs) decision to save you a lot of time and energy? Well, it goes back to the jobs the buyers want to achieve is first of all, they need to understand their problem. You have to spend more time understanding the problem that you're trying, they're trying to solve. And, you know, we just sort of take what buyers say is, well, this is my problem, is that during a discovery call, it's sort of face value. And you want to do the opposite. You want to be skeptical. You want to be curious. You want to dig into it. You want to make sure you really understand. And this is something that a lot of people just don't think about, is that one of the primary sources of value that you can provide to your customers, to your buyers, is to make them feel understood. So that's one of my goals early on is how can I make them feel like I heard them and I really understood? Because I thought if everything that followed after that, I was coming from a better position because the customer thought, yeah, Andy gets it. And maybe the other people really don't get it quite as much. And when they have to make their decision, they're saying, well, we have a choice. We can go with, uh, you know, company A that, yeah, they sort of get what we're doing, company B, but, oh, company C, Andy's coming. They get it. They understand us. They know what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. They get the problem. So spend more time at that beginning. And there was a, uh, and if you do that, then you can start painting the picture for the buyer of what success is going to look like. And so and this, I yeah, call and this, it vision I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And this sort of ties back to one of the things you mentioned earlier is, you know, one of the in, key ingredients of being successful in sales is, having that curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. Having that curiosity is going to fuel asking those better questions, more questions. Why? Tell me more so that you can fully understand 
at a level that most sellers aren't willing to put the time and the effort into getting to that point. And it, it plays into this ability to form a connection and, and trust with the buyer. Again, this is one of the shortcomings with the way of discovery is done with many companies with sort of you know, a scripted list of questions or the most commonly asked questions is that- We call them sales interrogations. Sales interrogations, right. <laughs> is that you assume that the customer trusts you enough to answer the questions. Mm. And again, there's something else, something else that most sales training misses is they assume it's, it's, yeah, it's a given. You're a salesperson. You show up. You say, we're going to do a discovery call. I'm going to ask my questions. They're going to give me full answers because it's in their best interest to do so. Yeah, it doesn't work no. that way. Well, no, even, even to kind of add to that, sometimes they don't necessarily know the answers yet. Like it's your job yeah. to help them find some of those answers. Exactly. Exactly. Again, that's part of, you know, let's, let me help you scope out what the problem is. So, yeah, I, I <laughs> this gets back to what we started talking in the beginning. This is sort of, a lot of this is just sort of being a better human, mm. right? It is not just taking everything at face value, being a little skeptical. It's for the benefit of the buyer. You're trying to help them understand what they're trying to achieve, help them get a better understanding of what they can achieve. And that yeah, requires curiosity, requires persistence, requires that you keep asking questions so you really understand. And whether using, you know, reflecting questions, ask the customer, make sure I got that right, whatever mm -hmm. technique you need to use is use it. Just don't assume anything. And assuming that you understand something is dangerous territory in sales because chances are you don't. Well, I think so many sellers want to just rush through the process to get to the next step, to get to the next question, to get to the next part of the process, to check that box and move on mm -hmm. to the next, you know, deal, discovery, demo that they're pressured to get in the pipeline that's probably halfway full of fluff anyway right. to satisfy their, you know, sales dashboard boss. jockey sales boss. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And that And that's part of the problem. And yeah, you know, I think the attitude that sellers need to have is, and this one that was certainly they talk about in sales, but it's I think maybe it was talked about more uh, a little while ago than it is now. Is, is certainly when I started in sales, the pitch was, look, you know, here's your patch. And in my case, it was not a geographic patch. I had a vertical market that I sold into, uh, mostly to building the construction trade. So it was houses builders, road builders, and so on. And I was told, hey, you're the CEO of this business. Act like the CEO of this business. And you don't hear that as much. It used to be very common in sales. You know, here's your patch, whatever it is, your list of accounts, whatever. Mm -hmm. This is your business. And that freedom, that autonomy sort of been slowly eroded uh, by yeah. the metrics jockeys. And the only way it's going to happen is sellers have to claim it. And I think that sellers feeling a lot of frustration. Obviously, they churn very quickly. Mm -hmm. Average tenure in a job is, is low. Uh, they're not feeling like they're getting the ability to support to develop from their managers. Yeah, it's 
expression was people quit managers, not jobs. I think that's largely true in sales. And so if you feel like you're in a situation where someone's not able to add value to your career and they just want you to hit that number, uh, you know, activity number, that's going to be frustrating. And it doesn't need to be that way. So sellers, I think, are going to have to be the agents of change in this environment, individual contributors. And they're going to be the ones that have to push back and say, yeah, it's an interesting suggestion <laughs> to their manager. Uh, let me think about it. Yeah. And it runs contrary to what most people do. But I sort of developed a reputation in my career. I finally had one, one boss out of frustration say, don't you ever just say yes to anything? No. That's <laughs> <laughs> not the way I did it. Because I could take their suggestion, but if that was wrong, who gets fired? Me. Right? So mm -hmm. if I was going to go out, I was going to go out on my own terms. And I was going <laughs> to succeed on my own terms. And I guess I was fortunate early in my career to have you know, managers that, that sort of supported that and gave me enough rope to hang myself. But I worked hard and, and I kept experimenting. You know, I was extremely curious. I wanted to do better. If something didn't work, I'd try something else and just kept doing it. And so, yeah, I was one of those people that always had a smaller pipeline than everybody else. But I was at the top of the sales charts. But I developed through experimentation. I ruthlessly qualified people and made sure they were at the point where they were ready to make a decision. They had done their internal work. Yeah, I did you know, great discovery. Um, so I felt like I understood what they were trying to achieve better than my competitors. So I just operated my own terms. But I was part of a team, right? I had people supporting mm -hmm. me. We worked together. I mean, my boss helped when I needed my boss. I mean, I wasn't doing it alone, but I was doing it on my own terms, so too, at the same time. So I, yeah, I would like sellers sort of keep this image in mind of what you need to do is you need to fit in and stand out, mm. right? So I'm I'm curious in, in that role was it a was it a smaller, larger, mid sized you know organization? All sorts. You know, first ones were I kept I worked for increasingly smaller companies, um, but I yeah I ran sales at. I don't know, six different startups, something like that. Um, well, because the reason I asked that question is mm -hmm. you actually see sometimes, and I don't know if you've seen this, but I have, is that in some of the smaller companies or the smaller organizations, it, they're ran a little bit closer to what you're talking about here, where there is a little bit more autonomy, there is a little bit more freedom, there is that ability to kind of run your own business inside the business as a seller. Yeah, I was doing this at startups and some of those times I was, yeah, the first, I was, I had the VP title as the first person in the door and I was spent two years selling before mm -hmm. we hired anybody. Um, but we always had the sense of urgency, but I never thought that this approach was runs contrary to having a sense of urgency to close deals and grow a company. In fact, I think it's the most efficient way is to go deep is not be superficial. Make sure you fully understand because then your win rate's going so that much higher. Um, so, yeah, I, I, people think this takes so much more time to operate this way. It actually doesn't. I mean, it's sort of a, I, to me, it's, it's a way you actually accelerate and help the buyer get to that point where they can say, 
yeah, this is good enough, right? Yeah. And so there's a term that Herbert Simon came up with for that. He said decision makers fall into one of two camps. They're satisficers or maximizers. Now, it satisfies a conjunction of satisfy and sufficient, suffice. So buyers will look at alternatives until they find a solution that satisfies their requirements, both for solving problem, achieving their outcomes, and, well, satisfies their requirements and sufficient to achieve their business goals. And satisfies. And what's their incentive? You know, the marginal gain from incremental investment of time just isn't there. And so my goal is always, how do I get the buyer to that spot as quickly as possible? How do I create this vision of success for them that they say, ah, oh, you know, I don't need to talk to anybody else. And even in some more transactional business, I was helping this company for a number of years. And we coined this phrase. What we're trying to do is take prospects off the market. And we did that by accelerating that front side of the sales and buying process. So we get the customer presented with this vision of success, what this feels like, right? What success is going to look like. Take them through a mental test drive of what that's mm -hmm. going to look like. And then they say, yeah, we don't need to talk to anybody else. We remove the incentive to talk to other vendors. And it works. <laughs> it's, it's, but if all you're doing is trying to sell your product, and you're just trying to push your solution as the only solution for them, if you're trying to persuade them instead of trying to influence the choices they're making, then, yeah, that won't work for you. And Andy. Forrester, just by way of wrapping up, and Forrester yeah. did a study, I don't know, I think maybe it's eight years ago now, something like that, about this idea. They said that they did a survey of large number of B2B enterprise buyers and said, yeah, the first seller to be able to present this vision of success, yeah. they had a different term for it, to the buyer, won the deal like 65% of the time, 65%. I mean, what odds would you take, <laughs> right? To win 65% of the time, you'd follow that every time. So it's, it's huge. And that certainly mirrors my experience is that, yeah, if you can re get to that point first with the buyer, they'll move ahead because they have other things they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, this is a lot of, I mean, there's tons of good, great things in here for all the sales hustlers listening. So this might be one of those episodes you want to listen to twice. Uh, <laughs> well, have me back. We'll talk about it some more. Yeah. Andy, uh, it'd be just uh, any final thoughts as we wrap it up, uh, you know, tell people where they can find your podcast or anything else that you want sure. well, to uh, have yeah. us include in the show notes for them. Yeah. I mean, certainly visit my podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. Uh, for the first four years, it was Accelerate with Andy Paul, but then I said the podcast was acquired last year by Ring DNA, and so it's Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. Yeah, I don't know exactly when this episode will air, but yeah, we have episode 900 is coming out next week. Um, be at a thousand before the end of the year, so it's all very exciting. But it's yeah, you know, in-depth conversations with with a people in the sales world marketing world, but some, but about a range of issues. And um, yeah, we've been doing a lot recently about mental health and well-being and, and uh, in sales. And it's, so we're trying to sort of treat the entire salesperson, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, find us there, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, Real Andy Paul is the 
the handle. And I post multiple times a day and uh, love to connect with you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andy. If you're listening to the podcast today and you enjoyed today's episode, write us a review, share with your friends. And as always, we're listening for your feedback. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Sales Hustle. Are you a sales professional looking to take your sales career to the next level? If the answer is yes, then I want you to go over to salescast.co. Check us out. And if you feel that you are ready, set up a time to talk with me and my co-founder, Chris. I'm your host, Colin Mitchell. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends.